the Trell family. Uh, I worked with Stephen Trell for seven years down at Temple Baptist Church in Crown College in Knoxville, Tennessee. We had a chance to travel together on missions work, and um, we went to the Middle East into the Kurdish region of, of that area back in 2008. At the end of 2008, while well, the war was still going on, but the northern part was secured, and they were starting to get some religious liberty up there. And that journey, among others, led Stephen and his family to become missionaries to the Muslim people of the Middle East. They spent time in Jordan, working with Syrian refugees, and then most recently in Iraq itself. On Monday, uh, Stephen and his wife were in a car together in Baghdad, uh, driving down the street where they live. Their children were at home with a neighbor who was watching for them. Uh, two black SUVs pulled up, came up from behind them. One boxed them in from the front, one from the back, forced their car to stop. Two gunmen got out of the car and shot and killed Stephen Trell, and he died in the arms of his wife. Um, he always said that there is no such thing as a closed country if you're not worried about getting back out. He knew where he was. He knew what he would be involved in, and he had such a heart. Uh, he went from a person who grew up thinking that uh, Arabic people were the enemy and they were them to having such a heart for them that he and his family relocated and moved over there and went to great lengths. And though he is at home with the Lord, we're still praying for his family, Jocelyn, and they have four children uh, from ages 17 down to two, little Stephen being the youngest. And um, this picture is a little bit dated, uh, probably about two years out of date now. But um, he uh, used to say, may the, the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering, which was one of the cries of the Moravian missions movement and that revival that went through, spoken by two young men that gave their lives in order to, to reach a hardened people group with the gospel. And so I want to ask you to pray for Jocelyn and for the children as they're under guard right now. They're trying to get them out of the country and trying to get them back, and they're trying to arrange things for funeral, and there's, um, there's just a lot of question marks about what happens now uh, to, to that family, to those kids. And so pray for them, if you'd, if you'd be willing to write down the name of the Trell family. It's actually spelled T-R-O-E-L-L. -L. And Jocelyn and Stephen are their names. And so actually I had a chance to travel with them. Uh, there's a, a picture of a crowd of us. I couldn't find a good picture. But if you can look through this bad picture in this crowd, there's skinny Stephen pre-beard uh, over there on the left and a friend named Matt Lulatello in the back. And then uh, I'm there as well, pre-beard. Um, and this is probably 2008. This was the dinner that we had right before we all left to go to uh, northern Iraq into the Kurdish area. Our families were all gathered together there. And so you can see Shannon peeking out there a little bit. What a, what a, I had never met anybody that was so meant to work with people in the Middle East. Now, he grew up in New Jersey, and he would fight with anything or anyone that would be willing to have an argument with him. I mean... We traveled in the Grand Bazaar, and you, if you've ever been to the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul, you know that that's a place of haggling. How many of you like to haggle? Anybody like to haggle? Right? few people. I hate haggling. I wanted to crawl in a hole and die. I was so embarrassed how hard he bartered with those people uh, in, in the, the bazaar. And I just kept saying, come on, let's go, let's go. And, and he wouldn't hear it. He wanted the price that he wanted. And I just remember him telling them, 
I have a wife and kids at home. Do you want them to starve? He told them that. And they said, are you mocking us? Are you mocking us? And um, boy, he, he had such a heart. And he left a number of saved, trained men uh, back in Iraq that um, may God bless and use and bring them to continue to reach their own people. The question that I ask tonight, there, there's a picture of us on the plane, Matt and me in the back there. Those are the only pictures I happen to have of that trip that I was able to find on short notice. But why, why was my friend killed? You could say all sorts of different reasons. Perhaps he'd made somebody angry or that the political climate had changed inside of Baghdad and they were mad at some of the pro-Western movement that was going on. You could, you could blame all sorts of things, but what it came down to is that he gave out the gospel in a very spiritually dark place, and the enemy did not like it. The devil hates when the gospel goes forth because the gospel has the power to free people from the bondage of sin and from the power of sin. And he hates God and hates anything that God loves, and he wants to destroy sinners. And so no doubt whether he manipulated people um, However it happened, uh, it was a battle of light and dark, of good and evil. And honestly, this, this isn't anything that is new. The proclaiming of the gospel, bringing uh, about a harsh reaction, is really as old as the gospel itself. The gospel being the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And so in the book of Acts, we come to a time when it was not a safe thing that the apostles were about to do, but the Spirit of God led them to do it. And Peter preached, along with the other disciples that were there, a powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, in verse number 14, we'll begin reading together. Acts chapter 2, in verse number 14. The word of God says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it came to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Let's pray together. Father, open your word to us. I pray that in this hour your spirit would guide us into truth, that you would show us uh, the, the power that is in the gospel of Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. By this time, the Lord Jesus Christ had given his life on the cross, and he died and was buried, and he rose from the grave on the third day. And he showed himself alive to the disciples, 
Uh, first to the holy women that went to the tomb to see him, and then to the disciples, and then to over 500 brethren at once. And after 40 days of being with his disciples, he ascended up into heaven where he was seated at the right hand of the Father in a place of great honor. But before he left, five different occasions, the Lord Jesus told the disciples, now the apostles, becoming once followers, now sent ones, these disciples becoming apostles, they now have been charged with carrying the news, the witness of the resurrection of Jesus to every creature on earth. To all creation, they were supposed to go and preach the gospel to every man, woman, boy, and girl. And that was a daunting task. But Christ promised them that they would receive power, that the Holy Ghost would come upon them. He promised the night before he died back in the upper room that he would send the comforter. He would send his spirit to empower them and to guide them. And we'll also see tonight that this was uh, fore, uh, foretold in the Old Testament as well, that God was going to pour out his spirit. And so they're praying and they're waiting for this power of the spirit to come. And on the day of Pentecost, when God brings Jewish believers and proselytes, Gentiles that have become Jews from all over Judea and beyond into that city, of all of these different nations, the power of God comes upon the disciples. They're enabled to speak in languages that they themselves did not know, but that the people who had joined themselves together in Jerusalem for the feast, they did know those languages. In fact, those were the languages in which they were born. And so as the apostles preached and taught, the men heard them speaking other languages, including their own heart language. God took the barrier that he put up back in Genesis 11 when you had the, the Tower of Babel. He took that language barrier when he confounded the languages and he brought it down temporarily to make sure that the gospel would go forth. And there were people from many different groups, people groups in many different nations that had gathered together and they were going to get the gospel. And what do you think they were going to go back and talk about when they returned from their pilgrimage to Jerusalem? They had traveled in for the feast day, and then they were going to go back afterwards. What do you think they were going to talk about? Well, we know what they're going to talk about now. They're going to talk about how the Messiah has been found and how he was killed and rose again from the dead. And so this is no accident. This is God working all of these things together. But some of the people thought, what are these men doing speaking in all these different languages? Aren't they from Galilee? We can tell by their accent and their dress and everything about them that they're from Galilee, which is not an important place. How are they speaking all of these languages? And some of them said, ah, they're probably drunk. And that's where we pick up. They think maybe they've stumbled upon some sort of babbling party. It says in verse number 14, but Peter, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and said unto them, ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. Peter was about to preach and he said, everybody, give me your attention. Listen to what I'm going to say. This is that same Peter that not too long ago, uh, just a handful of, of days in the scheme of things, just a few weeks ago, was too scared to name the name of Jesus around the fire to a little maid or to the servants when he stood outside the hall. And now here he is standing up in front of a huge crowd of tens of thousands of people and willing to declare these things. Something miraculous has happened in his life. Truly, he was not just converted, but that he was strengthened so that he might also strengthen, his strengthen the brethren as the epistles of Peter show. He stood up and he called to them and saying, I want you to hear all of the things I'm about to say. Verse 15, for these are not drunken, as he suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. 
If you were to measure the hours by the time that you got up and got going, that's how they did things in Bible times. So instead of getting up, uh, instead of saying, well, the, the third hour being 3 a.m., if it's 6 a.m. is when they got going, the third hour would be about 9 a.m. So it's a bit early for anybody to have been at the bottle. And he's saying they're not drunk. What you're seeing is something far different than that. They truly were under the influence, but a very different influence that they were under. I'm not sure what that noise is, but it doesn't sound good. I don't know. We'll see if that fixes it or if I broke it more. You never know until you pull it apart and put it back together. Nope, I broke it. All right. Peter, often the spokesman, often fearful, now gets up and in boldness defends them. I want you to see in verse 16, it says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He gets up to speak his sermon and he addresses a problem that's going on and he gets right into the scripture. That's always a good thing to do when someone preaches a message is to get right into the scripture. Where do you find authority to tell people what they ought to believe, what they ought to believe is true and false and right and wrong and what they ought to do and ought not to do. It doesn't lie in someone's degrees or education or experience or in the success of their life. It lies in the word of God. This is the foundation for knowing all of those things, what's right and wrong, true and false, what ought to be done, ought not to be done. And so he goes back to explain, no, this was foretold in one of the minor prophets. This is what it says. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. I want you to notice in verse 17, it says, I will pour out my spirit. In verse 18, it says, I will pour out in those days of my spirit. He's saying in those days, in those last days, a different time is coming. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon people like David and the prophets. Samson, other judges were supernaturally enabled by the Spirit of God to do what they were called to do by God. But the Spirit didn't always stay. And he wasn't always there forever. In fact, David was so worried after his sin, his great sin with Bathsheba, he was so worried about it that he prayed in Psalm 51 that the, that the Lord would not take the Spirit from him. You and I never have to pray that prayer. There's many good things in Psalm 51 if you've sinned against God and you're trying to get right with him. There's many things you can pray out of that psalm, but we can't pray if we're Bible-believing Christians, if, if we know Christ as Savior. We can't pray for the Lord not to take a Spirit from us because that's already answered. The Spirit of God will never leave us nor forsake us. For that is the Spirit of Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we don't have to, to worry about that. But what they were seeing, what Peter says, is you're seeing the fulfillment of Scripture where God is pouring out His Spirit. Now, when you pour something out, I want you to imagine emptying it out. Not just a little dribble, but all of it. And that is the Spirit of God coming in fullness now on these believers to stay with them, and not just on a few of them, but on every believer that knows Christ as Savior, now the Spirit of God has come as Jesus promised. You have some prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled in verse 19. It says, And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. You say, what is that great and notable day of the Lord? That is the day when Jesus comes back to set everything right. 
You ever look around this world and say, how can God continue to allow this heartache, these criminal things? You ask yourself the question, how could God allow a man like my friend Stephen to take his family and to go across the world to bear the gospel message and allow those men to take his life? And you say, why doesn't God do something? And the answer to that is he is going to do something. He is going to set everything right. And our society with all of the bent towards corruption and wickedness will be flipped on its head one day and it'll be aimed towards righteousness and the, the, the sinfulness that so dominates our society will become almost rare and unheard of during that thousand years of Christ's reign. He is coming back. He is going to set things right. But when he does so, it will be the closing of a door on a number of people. And so he is merciful and he is long-suffering, not wanting that the, uh, the wheat should be caught up with the tares too early. And so it says here that that day is going to come at the end of the tribulation and Jesus is going to make all things right as he rules and reigns upon this earth for a thousand years. Those two things have not happened yet. Verse 22, ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. He's saying, I want you to know who it is I'm about to speak of. He said, I'm going to speak of Jesus of Nazareth. And everybody would be able to think back the, the several weeks before when Jesus had that triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. They all heard about him. And then they heard about how on the beginning of that Passion Week, they welcomed him in with cries of Hosanna and recognizing him as the Messiah. And by the end of it, the crowds had turned and yelled, crucify him, crucify him. They would all know who this Jesus of Nazareth is. And before they were afraid to speak the name of Jesus, but now there is no more fear left. And he gets up and he boldly proclaims it, no matter what the consequences might be. He says he was a man who was proved, who was shown to be the real thing among you by miracles and wonders and signs. There were people who were saying, is not this the Messiah? And if, if he's not the Messiah, is the Messiah going to do even more miracles than this man does? He, he heals the sick and makes the blind see and the lame walk and casts out demons in the name of the Lord. Is, is the Messiah going to do even more than this? What more could he do? He raises the dead back to life. And so he was proven to be who he said he was among them. And it says that God did those miracles among the people so that everyone was a witness. And they could say, yep, I saw, I saw him heal that, that man with the withered hand. Yeah, I saw, I saw him heal that man who had been sitting there by the pool of Bethesda. There were crowds around. Interesting how cults always talk about their miracles and their visions and things, and no one's ever around to confirm them, when yet there's hundreds, if not thousands, of eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus' miracles. This pouring out of the Spirit upon them was the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that now they would have what they needed in order to witness. The miracles verified Jesus' claim of being Messiah. Verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Boy, he wasn't worried about offending people, was he? He was saying that Jesus came unto his own and they received him not. They did not know him. They did not receive him. And in fact, they rejected his offer of the kingdom. And not only did they reject the offer of the kingdom, but they also put him to death from jealousy. The rulers led the people to do that so that they would maintain their power and their control. And this was no accident. You say, what is all that stuff about determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God? 
Jesus did not die by accident. It wasn't a tragedy that happened because his enemies caught him. It wasn't a tragedy that happened that the Romans, they got their claws into him because now they finally had him in their, their midst. It wasn't any earthly agent that made that happen other than Jesus Christ deciding that he would lay his life down to pay for the sins of every man, woman, boy, and girl. He says, I lay my life down and I have the power to take it up again. No man takes it from me. <clears throat> and so he brought this responsibility for Jesus's death directly to the people. And in verse 24, he says, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. That's, that's the kind of Bible verse that if you and I get a hold of, that's the kind of thing that would make you shout, that would make you excited. You know what this is talking about? Jesus Christ rose from the grave because death could not hold him. It slipped, he slipped the, the grip of it. It was not possible that death should conquer the Son of God because in him was life, the Bible says. The eternal life that you and I have is the life of the eternal one, Christ in you the hope of glory. That's what eternal life is, and how could death conquer him? And the answer is, it didn't. It couldn't. And so now it says that he loosed, he removed, he put away or washed away the pains of death, the suffering of death, that part of it that would hurt. Look in 1 Corinthians 15, would you? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15. How many of you played sports as a young person? Now, I don't need you to raise your hand on this next thing, but how many of you beat another team so badly that, that you just had to rub it in a little bit? You had, to talk, you had to talk a little bit of smack, as they say. You had to cast some shade on the other team. How, how, you, don't raise your hand, but you know what I'm talking about. You ran the score up on them so savagely that you couldn't help but saying something. I want you to get that in mind when it talks about Jesus's final victory over death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 54. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it means that death couldn't hold on to the Lord Jesus? That if you know Christ as Savior, it can't hold on to you. That's what that means. That you and I have already overcome death, that great, dark, dreaded moment that for all of human history filled every uh, person that walked the earth with dread of what's going to happen and what will it be like. And there was pain to it, a sting to it, the, the thrusting, pointing edge of it. And Jesus, he declawed it. It says, where's your victory? No man, no woman could ever beat death or overcome death. But now Jesus stole it, stole the victory right out from underneath him. You ever seen somebody steal a base in baseball? You know, you can just see the look on the, the base, the, you know, the second baseman, the third baseman, and they just, they look pretty sour because it was stolen from right out underneath them. I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ defeated death so soundly and so thoroughly that there is no doubt in my mind right now that my friend Stephen, who loved the Lord and knew him, 
is beholding the face of the Savior, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so you and I may mourn for him that we don't get to see him for a while. You and I may feel great sorrow for his family and a, and a desire to help from the depth of our hearts, but there's also great rejoicing. There's also great rejoicing because we know what the Lord Jesus Christ said back in John. Would you turn there with me to John 11? I don't think I have this in the notes, but it just popped into my mind. In John chapter 11 and verse number 21, Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? This is how confident that the Lord Jesus was himself that he would overcome the death that sat before him. And so death could not hold him. It was not possible that it should happen. Peter goes on in his sermon in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 25 and goes to the Old Testament saying, not only did the Old Testament say that the Spirit would come, but it also said that the Messiah would die and would rise again from the grave. Acts 2 and verse number 25, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. This is going back to Psalm 16 that David is credited with penning, though we know it's the Spirit of God that wrote it, and it told the, the prophecy of the Messiah and what would happen. Would you look back with me there into Psalm 16? Psalm 16 and verse number 8. And Psalm 16 and verse number 8. Here we have them quoting the Old Testament to prove their point. By the way, if you're going to make such a claim about the Lord Jesus Christ, you should always be able to back it up with Scripture. If you're ever reasoning with someone about God or the things of God, make sure that what you're saying is grounded in Scripture. There's no better foundation than that to ground yourself in. It says in Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. These claims supported. In verse number 29, we're reminded that as great as David was, he still is dead. As great as David was, he died. It says in verse 29, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. That patriarch David, that, that's a term of honor. David is one of their heroes, just like Moses. 
David would have been somebody that every Jewish boy and girl would have grown up hearing about, and the Psalms that he wrote, and the battles that he won, and the, the kingdom that he led, and his heart for God, they would know all about him, and so they honored him, and rightly so. But he says that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. He says, I want you to know that as great as he was, death still got him. Death still got him, and in fact, we even know where he's buried. Very different from the Lord Jesus, as we're about to see him bring up. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God hath sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. He's saying David understood. David knew that from his line, which Jesus was of his line, would come one that would conquer death and would sit upon the throne and that he understood this, that he would be raised up and he would not be left in hell and his body would not see corruption in the place of the dead. Verse 32, this Jesus hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. Does that, does that sound familiar to anybody? We all are witnesses. You shall be witnesses unto me. Jesus just said that. You know what? They did exactly what Jesus told them to. Go and tell of the resurrection. Go and tell of eternal life and how not only did Jesus conquer the grave, but now everyone else can experience that as well. Go and tell everybody. And he says, there, we're witnesses. We saw it. We experienced it. It happened. We are witnesses. It says in verse 33, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. He's saying that since Christ is risen, and since he ascended on high, and since he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and since he promised the Spirit, and the Spirit has come, and you're all witnessing that in these miracles that you're seeing around the Jerusalem, Verse 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. He's saying even David recognized that this man was greater than him. Referring in prophecy in the Old Testament that David, who was a great Lord in his own right and a great king in his own right, was someone who called the Messiah, the one who would come from his lineage, called him Lord. And so as great as David is, death still got him. And as great as David is, even he is willing to acknowledge that it would be one that would come after him, that would conquer the grave and sit upon the throne, and that even he understood and called him Lord in prophecy. Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Without a doubt, without any room to hedge your bets, Jesus Christ did everything that he needed to do to prove that he was God. He did it all among you. David even agreed. The scriptures even support it. And so now there is no wiggle room. Now you are without excuse, to use a Bible phrase. And we're going to see, as we meet together next week, we're going to see, or perhaps the week after, because I think next week is, is prayer meeting. Or is it the Thanksgiving service? No, next week's prayer meeting, isn't it? Next week. Maybe it'll be prayer meeting. We, we, can, we can do something different if you want to. 
But the next time we gather together to talk about the book of Acts, we're going to see how the people responded to such a cutting message. There are places where they wouldn't want to preach such a cutting message because they don't want to offend anybody. Well, I don't want to offend anybody, but this is pretty offensive, isn't it? You are responsible for the death of the Son of God. And they could say it to those Jewish people that were there and cried crucify him alongside of their jealous, wicked, um, unbelieving leadership. But you and I are, are guilty in that same way of needing a Savior and him needing to lay down his life for us. And without that message, who would truly call upon the name of the Lord? So let's draw some applications before we, we close tonight. First of all, what can we take away? The first thing is to walk in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit. The Spirit was promised and given to the apostles. But not only to them, to all of the believers in that day, and then from then on to all of those that would call upon the name of the Lord as Savior. You have the same Spirit of God dwelling in you if you know Christ as Savior. If there was a day when by faith you asked Jesus to forgive your sins and to, to save you, knowing that he died and rose from the grave for you, then the Spirit of God has sealed you. It's like that stamp. It, it can't be messed with. Um, I, I, uh, perhaps you've, you've seen um, when someone wants to seal a letter, especially in olden days, they might take wax and they might put a blob of wax on a, a closed letter where it would touch both sides of the folded paper and then you'd put a seal on it and let it dry and there was no way to open it without breaking the seal. Well, we're, we're sealed by the Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit, and there's a guarantee and his authority upon it. You see, the spirit of God was the strength of the apostles, was the wisdom of the apostles, was their guidance, was their power, was the, was the, the person who allowed them to love like they needed to. And that same spirit lives in you. The same power available to them is available to you. The same victory that was available to them, the same boldness that was available to them is available to you. Now, I don't know that you and I are ever going to speak in, in uh, tongues we never studied before. I believe that that was something that we find only during the times of the apostles, as well as other miracles that were uh, sign gifts to verify their truth. But I know that there is a spirit that you and I are challenged to walk in, to daily surrender to. That's what it means to walk in the Bible. It means your daily life. And if we walk in the Spirit, it's going to be letting the Spirit, on a daily basis, direct our actions. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of God is at battle against your flesh. Your flesh is that part of you that doesn't want to do right. It's selfish, and it wants whatever it wants, and it generally wants to do wrong. And those two things are at war within each other, and you're going to surrender to one of them. If you surrender to the flesh, you're going to reap the fruit of the flesh. If you surrender to the Spirit, you're going to reap the fruit of the Spirit. And so we are shown here that they needed the power, and they received the power, and they got the power from the Spirit. And so we should yield to the Spirit and not yield ourselves to sin. What, is that, what does that even look like? How do you yield yourself to the Spirit? Really, it's, it's a matter of daily and maybe hourly or maybe moment by moment surrender to the Lord, saying, Father, I surrender to you, to your Spirit. May, may my words be your words. May my actions be your actions. My thoughts, your thoughts. My, my motivations, your motivations. It's, it's when we get out of the way and let the life of Christ that is inside of us live out through us. Have you, ever, um, have you ever watched a toddler try and tie their shoes? 
It's one of the most frustrating things in the world. Because you're like, we could, we could, we're always late. And I just want to tie your shoes and get out the door. But as soon as you go to try and tie their shoes, they're like, no, I can do it. They can't do it. They try and try and try until finally either you get so frustrated or they get so frustrated that you have to come in and do it anyway. In many ways, that's the spirit of God looking at us when we keep trying to do the Christian life in the flesh. When we keep trying to allow the flesh to rule and we can't get anything done and he's just sitting here waiting for us to get out of the way so that he can tie the shoes, that we would yield and allow the work to be done. I want you to know that if we don't choose the spirit, we will default to the flesh. If we don't choose the spirit, we will default to the flesh. There is no middle ground. Either we're taking ground in the power of the spirit or we're losing ground because we're walking in the flesh. So let's walk in the spirit. The second thing that we can take from this is to rejoice in death's defeat. We can rejoice in death's defeat. Jesus died, but death couldn't hold on to him. He broke the power of it, the suffering of it. And so instead of it being the dreaded end of the line, now for those that know Christ as Savior, Jesus just turned it into another stop along the journey on our way to our heavenly home. You have overcome death if you know Christ as Savior. I want you to know that um, I, I'm, I'm filled at times with a little bit of hesitation when I think about my own death. Which, of course, I, I imagine myself in Stephen's position this week if something like that had happened to me in one of the mission trips that I'd been on, or, or it could even happen around town here. You could get into a car accident, you could get sick, any number of things could happen. And sometimes there's that little bit of doubt. Like, okay, I know there's heaven on the other side of it, but it's like, what happens between here and there? But the Bible tells us that the Lord will be our guide even unto death. You know, sometimes I think I imagine that there's like this doorway and Jesus is on the other side and saying, come on, come on, let's go. Welcoming us into heaven. And we have to walk through that on our own. But it's more like he takes our hand and he says, come on, I've been this way before. Let's go together. And he's our guide even unto death. And he's overcome that. And where that used to be some horrible dreaded thing, it's not anymore to the believer. Now, I'm not going to lie to you and say that my heart wasn't broken when I heard or that I didn't shed any tears. I did. But I also remembered exactly where he is. Exactly where he is. And we'll go to his funeral, Lord willing, and we'll all probably share memories and and reminisce and, and shed more tears. But you and I should not look at death how the world looks at death. Those people that are without Christ, let's not look at it like that. Do you, do you know what death is for the Christian? It's graduation day. It's an exciting thing. I was talking with Pastor Steve today about this in our, our weekly meeting, and I thought, Stephen's ministry is over. Now, hopefully, his impact is not done. His influence is not done. Many people, but he's only maybe three or four years older than me, and I thought to myself, what if my, what if my ministry was done right now? What if my impact for Christ was done right now? We, we, ought not, we ought not drag our feet, is what I was thinking about. We ought not drag our feet to it. But the, the, the truth of the matter is we're all going to show up there one day, and it will be our day. And for Christians, it should not be a happy day. I remember, um, who was it that said the... The stories of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Mark Twain said that. Or Brother Joe Williams would say, uh, someday they're going to tell you that I died. You don't believe them. The Bible says I'm never going to die. Right? And, and that's true. And he's at home in glory as well. 
So let's not look at it as a time of terror, but a time of triumph. The day you die, believer, is graduation day. Let's rejoice that Jesus defanged, declawed death itself. And then finally, let's witness of Christ's resurrection power. Let's witness of Christ's resurrection power. Jesus rose from the dead, and the apostles saw it. So then they told other people, as they were witnesses about the risen Savior, about how that Savior had changed their life. In the same way, you and I are also called to be witnesses. Now, we haven't seen that Savior risen from the grave, but we also know his resurrection power. We also know the change in life. We also know the certainty of it because of what his word says. That risen Savior changed my life, and there's a number of people that I know out there that I want to know that same joy, that they might know the Father through him, for no man knows the Father except through Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So we certainly want people to have an eternal home in heaven, but we also want them to know the joy of the Lord here and now. We also want them to have the peace, the, the power of love, uh, that spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind that comes along with knowing Jesus Christ. He can change the lives of other people, and so we need to tell I know you, you almost don't believe this at times because I almost don't believe this at times. There are people waiting to hear that need to hear. Perhaps you've had enough situations in your life where you've talked to somebody about your faith and you talk to them about Jesus. And maybe you even brought them to the place where you say, would you like to pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? Would you like to call on the Lord? And you almost, you almost get discouraged when you hear no. And if you hear no enough times, you start to think nobody's interested. That is not true. You want to know how I know it's not true? You're here. I'm here. Some won't, but some will. Write that down somewhere. That's been such a help to me. Some won't, but some will. I didn't come up with that. I don't even know where I got it from, but I stole it from somebody who was much wiser than me. Some won't, but some will. That's the truth of it, and we need to witness of it. We need to share it. We need to tell people about it. A couple of questions before we have prayer time tonight. How do you know if you're walking in the Spirit? How do you know if you're walking in the Spirit? Am I going to have to call on people? David? There you go. It's one of the ways you know. If you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. What will you produce? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Is there a law on that? A limit of it? No, no, against such there is no law, right? That's what the, that's what the Bible verse says. You'll know because of the change that will be make, being made in your life. And it's almost, when you're walking in the Spirit, I don't know if you feel like, it's almost like you're not even thinking about it. I, I, don't, I don't sit there and think, boy, I'm walking in the Spirit now. It's almost like a, an unconscious thing. It's not that you're thinking less of yourself. You're just, you're just thinking of yourself less. You know, you're not, you're not, it's not about you in those moments. It's not about you. How does, how does the world view death? How do those without Christ view death?
Yes. Yeah, we, we do everything we can to not talk about death, don't we? To not see it. If you just take the supplement, you're going to stay young. You know what that means to stay young? Not get old and die. If you do this exercise regimen, you're going to get healthy, stay healthy. If you do this cleanse or this detox or this whatever, you're going to have... We, we go to so much effort to not see that. Who, who are the... Uh, the people that they put in advertisements to try and sell you things. Are they young, healthy-looking people? Yeah. Yeah, they don't, they don't put, like, a chain smoker that looks on the edge of death to sell you cigarettes or other things. They don't do that. They show you someone happy and healthy because our culture is terrified of death. How, how else does the world view death? We're scared of it. What else, Becky? Unfair. It's unfair. Yeah. You ever had somebody say, if something happens to me, I want you to know, what do you mean if? What do you mean if? I don't know who said this, but they said nobody gets out alive. Now, the Lord Jesus may return in our, our, he is going to return, but he may return in our lifetime. And we may be caught up with him, and in a twinkling of the eye, in a moment, we'll be raptured, we'll be caught up with him. That would be wonderful. But if he tarries his coming during our lifetime, it's not an if. Yeah, that's good. How, what else do they view about death? Yeah, Joan? Okay, some see it as an escape, especially what our missionary was sharing with us about Japan. It's final. Like, ah, cease to exist. This is an end to all my problems. Yeah. Yeah. What's that? Oh, people think we use Jesus as a crutch. That's true. That's true. How, how, do we, how do we know that it spooks the people without Christ? How do we know that they view it as final? Yeah, Ron? Okay, because so many commit suicide. Yep, they think it will give them release from their problems. Yeah. I, I think if you just go back to all of the, the ways that we hide it, or we try and dress it up. Dave, did you have a thought on it? Yes, there's a great fear surrounding it. Absolutely. How, how has Jesus Christ changed your life? Has he, has he done anything for anybody? You sorry people. I'm sorry for you. He's done a lot for me. I'm sorry he didn't do anything for you. Yeah. <laughs> He's brought you a lot of joy. Amen. What has Jesus done for you? Nancy? So you had to love more. Amen. What else? Anybody besides Sam and Nancy get saved? Who else? Anybody get anything? Eternal life. Eternal life. There you go. That's great. It's not a trick question. I'm saying, what has Jesus done for you? Yes, Pastor Steve. In light of Sunday, he's saved me from all of the 
meaningless pursuits that Solomon chased after to try and find yes. joy and satisfaction. He's, He's given us purpose. Help me get over myself and not live for self, but live for him. Mm. Amen. Set our affections on things above. Yeah, Josh? Change the whole course of your life. Amen. Yeah, I was headed in a very different direction. Anybody headed in a different direction before they got saved and then their, their path turned? I can say absolutely. Absolutely. Now, do you know anybody, do you know anybody that might want joy, that might want to learn to love more, that might want eternal life, that might want to be delivered from living for the wrong things to get over themselves? Do you know anybody who might, might want to hear that? This is, a, this is a trick question. The answer is you probably do. You probably do. So tell them. Tell them. Let them know what Christ has done for you. Be a witness of his resurrection power as you speak with others. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and the truth that we know that you have overcome death. We don't need to be afraid of it that we can trust you, that you'll guide us through all the way, never leaving us. I thank you, Father, that we are overcomers in your strength and in your power. Deliver us from the fear of it. Let us rejoice in its defanging. We thank you for the witnesses that spoke to us of your resurrection. May we speak to others in gratitude and humility, trusting that your spirit will work. Let us walk by thy spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you don't have a prayer,